Hello, and welcome to Science Unscripted. Connor here. And Gabe. And uh, right up, we just got a little, little shorty, an email that I got to get off my chest here. It's not a... <laughs> is it on your chest? No. <laughs> I just got to read it. Oh, okay. Um, brilliant, outstanding interview about scientific abstracts is the subject. Your ability to beautifully communicate the exaggerated self-promotion invading modern scientific report writing is truly unmatched anywhere in world radio. I feel strangely content just by listening. Thanks so much. What's sad is that that still has the effect on me that it's not supposed to have. <laughs> that makes it feel like our show, Science Unscripted, is, is the... Uh, what's what I'm looking for? The the superlative of all superlatives. The non plus ultra. Yes, and what in fact is happening there is our very astute listener yeah. is using the lessons from research out of Austria uh, to 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 fill us with language if, that just just makes us glow like we're in, drugs. If you inject that kind of emotionally laden language into something, the person reading it will stop thinking critically about what you're writing. Yeah. That's, and, and that's what just happened to me there. I I'm stopped. so happy when I read that. <laughs> it, it, I think it's true. Yeah, I want it to be true as well. Yeah, so it's dangerous to have that in scientific uh, research papers or in abstracts. We've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. We have also just recently talked about some astronomical research. Mm-hmm. What, a, a week or two ago? The birth ago. of stars. Well, the, the birth- environments where the, stars are born. The environments where planets accrete from all the dust and stuff that's floating out there in space and become planets. What environments can, uh, what, what extreme environments can they be in and still sustain life or become capable of hosting life in the future? It can be really extreme. That's what we, we learned from uh, Maria Claudia Ramirez Tanus, who talked to us from Heidelberg here in Germany. Max but, Planck. Yeah. Max Planck and Stu. And Max Planck, back at it again. No. Back at it again. You're going to double Planck me? I'm going to, I'm going to do a, Two-minute plank here, the, the exercise, you know, the exercise. Anyway, um, this one, though, the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research, together with the Sonnenberg Observatory. It was published in Nature Astronomy. Mm-hmm. And um, there must be circles that really think of it this, this way. It's like this back and forth. They called it in German a krimi, which would be like a crime. Mystery. Yeah, yeah, a mystery or a yeah, crime thriller. novel. Yeah. Are, have we discovered exomoons or not? Have we done it? It keeps know. going back and forth. I don't know. Have I, we? I, I, I know you don't know. Where's, I, what's I the consensus? Know. Okay, so uh, the consensus now is no. Okay. We thought we had, but no. Bomber. The, yeah. yeah, the Max Planck Institute researchers have come up with an algorithm that has gone through all this data, and based on how they fed that or, or taught that algorithm to look for exomoons, the software says there are none. Nah. Now, yeah, yeah. To, we got to rewind because I don't think many people listening out there are... I don't think, following the debate? Or do, does anyone think about exomoons? No. We're, we're, we're lucky if our Not listeners are thinking about exoplanets, which I think already are pretty cool. Yeah. And it comes down specifically to two exoplanets. So and whether or not those two have moons? That's the question. So Kepler, the Kepler telescope, which back when I got my, my uh, four-inch telescope and was looking up at the, at the stars, sometimes I aimed it at Cygnus, the swan, for anyone who looks up at the stars at night. Yeah. That's where Kepler used to be, or maybe it's still doing it, was staring at 150,000 stars. And what it was doing was, does the luminosity, how bright these stars are, does it drop sometimes, unexpectedly, 
for reasons that aren't related to the to what happens due to gravity or, or how just, far they are away or or just uh, sometimes stars they flare up and go, and retract flare up retract. Okay. that's normal yeah. but sometimes they just dip why yeah. well what makes sense is if a planet transits right in front of the star so between our eyes or the telescope and the star something comes in between it blocks some of the light so the light dips it's like a pixel maximum you're not you're not seeing what the planet looks like you're seeing it just dip a tiny bit a mm -hmm. percentage and if that happens once and then twice and then three times now you've established the orbit how long does it go around this is clear we've got ourselves an exoplanet kepler i think has found it's found like half of all the exoplanets out of the 5000 yeah and two of them they were pretty sure they thought that hey it looks like the way the light dips when it goes you know in front of that star um, that there's like a trailing thing, something else there, that that's probably a moon. Okay. And these planets were huge, like sometimes three times the size of Jupiter. Mm -hmm. And the moon was also huge, like the size of Neptune. And so they thought they had the smoking gun evidence that in combination with the way that uh, a moon or really any, any, any body can change the, um, the orbit of something. Yeah. They're, they're pretty sure we've, we've got a moon, we've got two moons. And then something happened. And then people went back through the data and they're like, ah, could be something else. Could be another Jupiter-like planet in between. Could be, and so there was all this confusion. It was okay. sort of in the air. Then Hubble got involved. Now we have a more powerful telescope. Hubble, Hubble, yeah, Hubble didn't think Webb, James Webb Telescope. That's the next step. That's yeah. where we we might be able to aim it and say we can actually see this Neptune-sized moon. It should be able to do that. But it was sort of one side said there are moons, and then it was unclear. And now the Max Planck Institute has come out and said our algorithm which is open source, anyone can use it, anyone, anyone can look at it, says it's not likely that there are moons. So it has gone mm. back to the point where I think the consensus is we cannot say that we have ever discovered a single exomoon, a, a moon going around a planet, going okay. around a star that is not ours, even though our solar system is filled with them. And the human mind and all these astronomers, these hobby astronomers or professional astronomers have bowed to the algorithm? That's uh, it? The algorithm says so, so then we're just going to believe it and f give up? No, I would assume that the original authors of those papers declaring that there were exomoons They're still out fighting. There, they're probably saying, well, that algorithm is screwed up. Okay, got yeah, it. But when there's not a scientific consensus, and that is clearly the case now, then you have to default to saying we haven't... We oh. can't, we, oh, yeah. we, we, we can't quite say that we've discovered them yet. We're gonna, the, they're all going to agree to disagree then at this point. Uh they would have to. Yeah, even though it's, I mean, it's just, look at, look at our solar system. All the planets, except two, the small ones, all, there are moons everywhere. There are all these other we exoplanets. Just we haven't officially found them. We haven't officially found them yet. Oh, That's where okay. we stand. All right, well, I got, a, I got an, an audio message to play for you. Ooh. Okay. It, is it, is it anti-faked so that nobody can, can I, use I, that I, to enter I, their... I know for sure that this audio message was sent to me. No, but I mean, it hasn't been run through anti-fake software so that people can't manipulate it to then, you know, no, like I didn't last put it into about... I didn't put it into an aquarium. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, let's hear bowl. it. Let's hear it. Hi, Gabriel. This is your mother. I am, um, I just want to tell you about something that happened to me the other day. I was looking out of the window uh, to see the birds. And in the meantime, I see the cat coming from far away, and he has something orange in his mouth. I just about died. I, I, 
I said to myself, no, this can't be true, this can't be true. I started to shake. I couldn't even hold my phone because he started to slaughter this cardinal, this most beautiful cardinal, just to pieces. He went back and forth and back and forth. The, the feathers were flying all over the place. I could not look at it again. I saw just the skeleton laying there and the feathers, and then I banged on the window, and then he finally ran away. But this thought of this cardinal has been staying with me for quite some time because I had never seen uh, this happen, um, especially to one beautiful cardinal. And uh, that cardinal we had taken pictures of uh, just about all summer because your daughter is crazy about cardinals. And so whenever we saw he and his girlfriend pack, we had to take pictures. So I just want to let you know that's what happened to us. That's my mom. <laughs> that, how? That's my mom. How? There, there's a, a whole lot to say there. How often do you get messages like that from your mom well, or from your dad? Well, to be completely fair, the, the, the original account that I got from her was, was done over the, the phone or on a, on a call. And I had her send that message to me okay. afterwards. Okay. So it's not as – she was even more passionate about it in her actual call to me. This, this really, she, really messed with her. She was looking out the window at the birds, saw a, an orange cat, did she say, come back with a cardinal in its mouth, and it ripped it, it to shreds it, it was in a front cat. of her. She, she, initially, she thought it was something orange in the cat's mouth. It was red. Oh. What was in the sorry, cat's yeah, mouth. Yeah, yeah. Your she, cat? Your, sorry, your parents' it's cat? It's a cat that our neighbor Dolores feeds. It just kind of roams around freely around the neighborhood and just yeah. kills. A, a lot of cats. Well, yeah, that, that, that's, yeah, so that's the study. The reason why I'm playing that, this study out of um, Auburn, Cornell universities in the U.S., Paris, New Zealand, Australia, they did a gigantic analysis of just how many species cats, free-ranging, you know, freewheeling domestic cats kill. And it um, has just come out in Nature Communications. It's over 2,000. 2,034 different species. They looked at 500 different analyses. I mean, how, I'm, I'm, how, how many different... 2,000? Like, does it, it, are they including this, insects? Are they ripping apart worms? Domesticated cats kill more, more species than any other creature on Earth. That's what we're talking about here. From mammals to amphibians to reptiles to insects, like you just said, what, you name it, they kill it. Yeah, yeah, but not, certainly not more than including we, cows. We humans, animals. What? That they, no. sca they 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 forage, they scavenge. How did they kill cows? Well, the, the cow didn't wasn't killed by the cat, but they 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 were eating. They were in this in one of the studies in these five hundred studies. They they also scavenge. Oh, eating the eating. So they're the, not just predators. They also kill meat that's already been killed. Animals that have eat already meat, been killed. Eat meat. Yes, yeah, carrion. Eat, yeah, meat, yeah. Um, no, we've talked about this before on the show. Uh, the anecdote that always comes to mind for me is we live across a park and in Europe they have these beautiful red squirrels. In North America we have these gray. larger, fatter, grayer ones, yeah. bushy tail. I, I love them too. Yeah. But they're really like like picture book beautiful, the ones here. And our park was full of them. And then our neighbors um, picked up three kittens and mm. fast forward a year, two years, three years later, the, the squirrels are gone, which no is squirrels. unfortunate. So I'm biased. You're obviously not biased. A, not a week goes by. We've got a, a backyard 
uh, and not a week goes by where I don't find a mouse and, and a mouse that has just been, like my mom said, just slaughtered. Yeah. And the cats just leave the meat there. They, they're killing these mice for fun. And that is the most common of, of all the victims that were analyzed in these 500 studies. Mice. The house mouse. Yeah. Right. Which is connected to the historical reasons for for having a cat in the first place. Yeah, they get rid of the mice. Yeah, Vermin. but they're they're killing they're killing species all over the earth. Every single continent except for Antarctica. Uh, their their most favorite food, birds. Fifty percent of the species killed by cats, birds. The next reptiles at twenty two percent. I wouldn't have guessed that. Mammals then at twenty percent. Insects five. And amphibians, 2%. So that's the breakdown. So 50% birds, and then reptiles, 22. Mammals, 20. Insects, 5. And amphibians, 2%. Interesting. Yeah, that the reptiles, that wasn't on my radar at all, but I guess I don't live in... I've never lived in an area where you have a lot of reptiles in the first place. And the most popular, so the house mouse, sparrows, and then rabbits. Hmm. So those are the top species. And now here, here's where the problem, I mean, you, you could ask, so what? 16% of the species analyzed were on the endangered list, right? So 300 of those 2,034 species are endangered. And 11 of the animals or species that were found to have been consumed by cats are now gone. They're extinct, right? So cats are a threat or domesticated cats that are allowed to roam free. Are a are a conservation threat, and I'm just wondering what 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 could you do? Would you, do you ask all cat owners around the world not to let their cats go outside? Is that would that would that be the the solution, or is this just is just just a problem that we're going to have to deal with? I I wish I knew more about cats to know whether or the extent to which that's feasible, because I know there are cats. People I, I know cat owners where the cat stays inside. They tend to have litter long, box. Yeah. They, well, they tend to have longer lives. They don't contract the diseases that other cats get when they go outside. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's feasible for every cat. And what I also know is that detaloning them or declawing them is very controversial. A lot of people are against that for animal welfare reasons. They're born with these things. Even if they scratch up your sofa, they should probably have them. Other measures, putting bells around their necks have... Red- to alert pred- or to, or to alert prey? Yeah, and I've also read, I think this was, I'm going off comments online, but um, cats have unfortunately gotten caught on something and been asphyxiated as a result of that, if it's not placed well. So it's a complex issue. Last time we talked about it, we got an email from a listener who was very upset with us and said that we were being typical guys, right? Guys tend to like dogs um, traditionally, right. and, and women tend to like cats, yeah. and that we were saying that cats were terrible just because we're guys. And, we're, and I would like to... We talked about that, I don't know, a year or two ago. What I'd like to say now is um, that's possibly partly true. However, I'm I'm a dog owner, Gabe, you too, and I'm totally willing to talk about how destructive dogs are, if they are, what, whatever the data is on, yeah. what do, on the damage they're causing. And in that same vein, cats are so destructive that we do need to talk about it. Now, whether there's a solution for it out there. Well, yeah, for two, two things to say here. We now have a study that, that shows globally how destructive cats are, domesticated cats are. And we also have one woman who has shown how little of a fan she is of well, how, cats. How, how upset, My mom. How, how upsetting, it, upsetting it is, yeah. More than up, I, it, this traumatized my mom because that cardinal 
that she watched get slaughtered. She's not lying. I was there this summer for six weeks, and my mom and my grand, my mom and my daughter, so she and her granddaughter Lynn, almost every day were taking pictures of this cardinal because they loved watching it and its um, mate, its its mate kiss, peck at each other every single day. Hey, 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 hey. Wait, yeah. you know, I got another picture of the of, yeah. the, of the cardinal. Now it, it's um, gone. The skeleton. Yeah. Yeah, it's gone. I think, yeah, at the very least, what this kind of study hopefully does is is inform. So anyone who's making a decision in the future about getting a pet, that you can keep this in mind. Because in my example with the neighbor, I don't think she even had that thought when she picked up her three kittens. I don't expect her to know all that. You know, you pick up an animal because you you have a connection to it. But I think it's better for all of us if we know these facts going into it. And for listeners all over the world, scientists have been studying cat diets for over a century – now we have a, a, a comprehensive global magnum meta-analysis of what cats are doing all over what the What is it called? The title of the, of, the, of the study is A Global Synthesis and Assessment of Free-Ranging Domestic Cat Diet. Okay. And yeah. a number of universities from, from the United States all the way to New Zealand and a few in between. So, yeah, check that out. Okay, last one for today, and I think it fits to the season. Uh, mm. This was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and it's titled or entitled Saying No, the Negative Ramifications from Invitation Declines Are Less Severe Than We Think. <laughs> so, when you get invited to something, <laughs> like right now, this holiday season, for example, oh, when you get invited to some event or to go somewhere and you, you don't actually want to do it. I've got a story to share before you just yeah. don't let me. F- okay. Go remind. With okay. No, no. Remind me. I, I th- but I think it's you and every other single human on this planet. Yeah. We all end up going to events and doing things that we don't really want to because it's hard to say no. It's hard to decline an inv- invitation. And it turns out that part of the reason it's hard is we always think that the inviter uh, that there are going to be all these negative ramifications or consequences for in saying no to the to the nice, friendly person who was uh, nice enough to invite me to something. And it turns out that there's a gap in how we judge the consequences versus how they do. And I won't go into, go into every part of this study. It's a it's a big one. It's a long one. It was actually five separate studies that they kind of mashed together in the end. Mm. I'll just tell you how they did one of them, kind of because it's representative of the rest. They basically brought, I think in this case, uh, it was 400 people. And for half of them, they had them imagine, you know, look, your friend invites you to go to a museum exhibit with them. One single friend. One single friend is inviting you. Hey, you want to go to a museum? Yes. And in this case, you weren't the only... Well, you would say no. Well, right, right. <laughs> At the end, you're going to decline, probably. But um, in this case, it was the friend's inviting you and possibly some other people. Hey, if you say no, it's okay. okay. So it's, yeah. it's not like tons yeah. of pressure. Yeah. So half of them are trying to figure out how they would assess that situation. The other half are the inviter. Yeah. They're the ones inviting someone else. Mm-hmm. So then they had to go to a scale that was from zero to seven and say, if I as the inv- invitee... If I, as the person invited, say no, how high will the inviter's anger be? Or um, how? So you're trying to look into the the thoughts and feelings of the person inviting you. Correct. Okay. How high will their disappointment be? Yeah. How much will it harm our relationship? And you know, will they ever invite me again? Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. 
if I invite them to something in the future, will they now say no because oh, I've said God, no? Yeah. yeah, all these things. And, and <laughs> it's a good, beautiful reflection of how we actually operate when we're deciding, mm-hmm. do I say no or do I say yes? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that study and the others with it, they did it in, in a slight variation of ways. They all showed the same thing, that um, if I think let's just stick with anger the inviter's anger if I say no, if that's a three and a half out of seven, that's what I'm th- I think it's going to be, that in reality, it's more like a two and a half. Okay. And so you amplify it by your own, I, your own anxiety or whatever. Yeah, I'm so con- This is going to have real major consequences. <laughs> and in fact, it's not as bad. And this research, I just wanted to mention it because I think it's a, it, it helps, it hopefully will help some of you to say no to mm-hmm. the invitations that you're going to receive and to, to realize that, uh, the consequences are not as high. That for the the inviter, um, and that gets deeper into the study, and I, but the inviter is not really going through this entire wild thought process that you are. Yeah. They're just kind of sitting there like, well, is it a yes or a no? And, and then they, <laughs> they move on. They just want some clarity. Yeah. Are yeah. you coming or are you not? Yeah. And there's not all this emotional baggage with it. Gabe, you said you had a story? Oh, yeah. So uh, I play on a, a roller hockey team, and we've got a Christmas party coming up that I have not been attending for the past couple of years because... I quit drinking four years ago and didn't want to be around because there's a lot of drinking. A lot, of social, a lot of social pressure to drink with a group like that. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I mean, German roller skaters are <laughs> <laughs> in line. Hockey players are going to yeah. yeah. A couple of them really drink. Anyways, this year, uh, one of the players was like, hey, Gabe, come on. It's been, it's been a while since you stopped and, and you haven't been coming to this Christmas party. Do you want to come? And I let it sit for a week. I just, I, I, what I tend, Fest, what I tend to do with invitations and, and just social obligations, I just let, just hope that it goes away. Mm-hmm. That's my, you know, um, that's my strategy, my, my modus operandi, as they say. Anyways, the guy gets in touch again. It's like, Hey, what's up with, with this party? Are you coming? And then I give him this really long winded, uh, no. And then he completely blanks me. So I, now I don't know how he feels. How he feels. So what do I do now? Well, reach wait, out to him and be no, like, "What you can do is, based on this research, know that he feels less <laughs> aggrieved than you imagine he does." That's what it says. I mean, also in the research, we didn't talk about it, and there's not enough time. Yeah. It does matter which reasons you give. So mm-hmm. the best reason I believe in this study was if if you financially can't afford to, everyone understands that. In fact, they have enormous empathy for that. Yeah. If you say I don't have time, uh, etc., that's very different than I don't want to. I would prefer to watch my favorite series Got right, on 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 TV. Got it. So, well, I di- I didn't say that. The messaging I, I, matters. I, I said I said that I did I, that I I don't want to deal with my own social awkwardness. So that. Let's okay. see how that. Well, yeah, that's that's a pretty good one. Yeah. Any other tips out there, or tricks, or advice for people who I think it's all of us struggling to say no to, yeah. to some of the invitations. I mean, what a great problem to have, but it is a problem. Yeah. How do you get out of an invitation? Let us know. And also, if you have any stories about about um, uh, species that a cat, that your cat, or that any cat has devoured and slaughtered. Yeah, or, 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 or do you th- ever think about exomoons? Any of those things. <laughs> Let us know. SU at DW.com.
sleep better. Yeah. Sleep better, not sleep more. Sleep better. Yeah, just sleep better. It makes your immune system way better. To find out exactly what that means, uh, we're going to go to one of the researchers involved in this study, Professor Neil Walsh in Liverpool. Science unscripted. Yeah, my, my name is uh, Professor Neil Walsh. I'm at Liverpool John Moores University. I am an applied physiologist with an interest in sleep, and we've just published an exciting paper in the flagship journal Sleep. Uh, looking at how uh, sleep quality has an influence on respiratory infection. Neil, if if you could summarize your research in 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 a single conclusion for our listeners, what is that conclusion? What we show is that good sleep quality protects against respiratory infection. So it's not just about sleep duration that's important, but good sleep quality is important to protect you against respiratory illness. What is good quality sleep? What do you what do you mean by that? In our study, we assessed quality sleep by asking a simple questionnaire of the individual. How was your quality sleep last night on a scale from one to four, from very poor to very good? People tend to rate the quality of their sleep when you ask them based upon how quickly they get to sleep, something we call sleep latency, but also how, you know, how disturbed was their sleep. So if they have a good night's sleep that's generally not disturbed. So so the good news is, is when you ask people about their sleep, it typically relates well to more objective measurements of sleep. Just how significant is this difference? If I, if I get a great night's sleep and then I go to, I don't know, Oktoberfest here in Germany, which is, you know, the air is full of viruses in there, um, versus, you know, getting a bad night's sleep and I walk into that same room, is there... Is it twice as likely that I catch one of those respiratory viruses and, and end up with a cough or something worse afterwards? Is it three times as likely? What, what are the numbers? It's the latter. It's nearly three times more likely are those individuals who've got sleep restriction but poor sleep to get infection versus those who have no sleep restriction, who have good sleep quality. So it's quite a dramatic increase in respiratory infection risk. And the, the beauty of our of our study is that we did this in a very controlled environment where young adults were, were, were starting military training. And so they tend to, they share living accommodation, they eat the same food, they do the same exercise. So it's actually a really controlled environment. And so you would assume that they were all exposed to similar infectious risk because they were all mixing to, together, like, like the example you give of the festival. So, so actually, it is actually quite a dramatic increase in risk by having poor quality rather than good quality sleep. So it's all about the sleep quality. Neil, can you help our listeners around the world keep them healthier? What can they do to have higher quality sleep? Is, is it, you know, dark curtains in the room, earplugs, lavender oil on your neck or, or on your chest? Uh, what, what works? The first one is that it, it's highly recommended to adopt a consistent sleep schedule. Go to bed and wake up at the same time, even including the weekends. The second recommendation is to avoid large meals, high doses of caffeine and alcohol in the hours close to bedtime. The third one is to, it's a bit obvious this one, but it's to ensure that your bed and your pillow are really comfortable. And importantly, that the room is cool, dark and quiet. Think that your room should be like a cave. The fourth one is to establish a really relaxing bedtime routine. So switch off your mobile devices, you know, at least 30 minutes before bedtime. 
and go to bed really when you feel sleepy. And then the final one is that there, there is good research showing that if you undertake exercise during the day, this will help you fall asleep more quickly. Uh, and that's a good measure of sleep quality is, is what we call sleep latency, how long it takes you to fall asleep. And that was Professor Neil Walsh uh, talking to us from the Liverpool John Moores University at the School of Sport and Exercise Sciences. Yeah, and more, more and more research uh, about uh, how good sleep is for us and how important it is. It scares me every time I come across it. Be- because you don't sleep Because well. I'm not a good sleeper. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes it difficult. And that makes it, what, uh, three times more likely that you're going to have a respiratory yeah. illness. I wonder what it actually is technically that, 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 that fosters or that makes your immune system stronger when you, are, when you have slept well. More cytokines or something like something's better. Yeah. Something's better that allows you to kill off those invaders. Yeah. And really interesting science right there. Useful. Mm-hmm. Useful. And yeah, especially that smartphone. I, I wonder sometimes how how many millions, billions, trillions of human hours have late at night kind of been stolen away by our smartphones. I'm I'm part of that problem. It's why I lock <laughs> I lock my phone on the weekends in a smartphone lockbox. Because I'll sit there scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. You look, oh, it's, it's almost 11. You look up again, it's 12.30. And I'm still listening to what uh, am I doing? Hotel California by some dude who can play the guitar really well. No, I'm listening to Science Unscripted. <laughs> That's why I'm listening to it. <laughs> uh, no, uh, very good advice out of, uh, out of the UK. Any questions, comments, any related research, we'd love to hear about it. SU at DW.com. Made for Minds.